0: Welcome to the Way Church podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. So we'll be in 1 John chapter 3. Go and grab your Bibles, turn there. And if you're taking notes, for our note takers, you can title this sermon Facts shape feelings. Facts shape feelings. Again, First John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So again, you're going to have to listen quick this morning, right? Got a lot of ground to cover? It's going to be all good. You guys ready? You're not ready? Need Austin to come back up here. Austin, we need you back up here. First John chapter 3 verse 1 says this. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And that's what we just sung. Jesus will return, and we will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says it like this. When we see him face to face, he says, now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Philippians 3.21 says this, he says, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body, which all the 40 and over crowd would say, amen. I mean, quite true story. Just a couple of years ago, I threw out my back, blowing my nose, and my kids will not let me forget about it. True story, craziness. So yes, amen and amen. But as great as this fact is, there's a greater fact that we cannot miss in this passage, It's God's great love. God's great love. It says in verse one, see what great love the Father has given us. In this great love, you will never experience outside of knowing God. Never. You will never experience greatness that love is outside of knowing God because God himself set the standard and definition of love. I think one of the most concise Full passages in all the Bible when it comes to love is what we call the love chapter. First Corinthians 13. If you've ever been to a wedding, you probably heard First Corinthians 13 read. But verse 4 talks about love, and I think this is what this perfect kind of love is. First Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says love is patient. See, we're already in trouble, aren't we? Y'all in trouble. Love is patient, love is kind, love is, does not envy, Is not boastful, Is not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, Is not irritable, it does not keep record of wrongs. And we see this perfect love for about three chapters into Genesis. Then Genesis 3 comes. I don't know if you know this, Genesis 3 is when God said, you know what, don't eat of this one tree. And man and woman said, you know what, I hear you but it looks good, it's going to make me wise, and I can be like God, yeah, I'll take some of that. And that's when sin ended the world. And that's what we, the benefits we see of everything we happen around us right now, brokenness from one sin. But what I want us to see is that God came to them after they sinned, rebelled against the Lord, and said, did you eat from the tree? Which is funny, like he didn't know. This is what dads do, right? Like, I already know what you did. I want you to know what you did. Did you eat from the tree? And the man's response was, the woman you gave me. Right? Hey, fellas, don't do that, man. It's not going to end well for you. Not going to end well. So the woman you gave me, so God, it's your fault that she did it. Right? I'm innocent here. There's all kinds of marriage counseling wrapped up in this verse. In other words, the honeymoon's over at this point, right? Right? But in this one statement, this one heart posture, we see a boastful, arrogant, rude, self-seeking statement of record-keeping of wife's wrongs that was not patient. There goes 1 Corinthians 13, 4-5 out the window. And it has been the same since. Love has been twisted and tainted by the original sin. And this influence that sin has over love is clearly felt in our culture. I mean, we talk about... I mean, a couple things. Love is accidental. This is what we think, right? Because you can fall in love, and you can fall out of love. So walk where you're, watch where you're walking, because it's dangerous out there. I don't want to be falling in love and falling out of love. Like, it's completely accidental. Love is earned. See, we've got to work to secure it, and we have to work not to squander it. Love is a feeling. If we feel in love, then we are. If we don't feel in love, then we must not be. And since love is a feeling, we can choose who we love and when we love. And love has been taken so far outside of God's design that we completely lost what it even means. We use love all the time. Like, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love March Madness. Like, I love watching the upsets, right? I love the Cinderella stories in March Madness. I'm not loving my bracket so much. But we use love all over the place, and it totally lost the meaning of what love is. And so he sees, says here in verse 1, See, King James, for you KJV folks, behold, I like that. I need to use that more. Behold, this great love, this kind of love, because it's so different than what we see around us. So notice what you see, but now see what love is. This great love God has given. The NIV says lavished. I like that too. Maybe I'll make my own Bible. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. Lavished on us. I don't know how many things you lavish. My, my kids, when they make a craft, they lavish just all kinds of stickers and glitters. Like more is always better. I'm thinking about my own plate at Thanksgiving. You know, I get some turkey, mashed potatoes. I pass by the green beans. Who wants that? More macaroni and cheese. And then comes the gravy, right? And boy, I lavish that gravy on that plate. Lavish. It's overflowing. It's a big mess. I'll say, I'll take the gravy boat. You guys can do what you want. Lavish it. We see God's love is lavished on his children. So a couple things I want us to see. Number one, God's great love is given. It's given, meaning you cannot earn it or work for it. It's without conditions. God's love is given. Number two, God's great love is graciously given. So God's great love is given, number one. Number two, God's love is graciously given. And so grace really means you're getting what you don't deserve. You're getting what you don't deserve. So God's love is given, which means God's... Gracious love is given and not works driven. Does that make sense? It's given, not good works driven. God's love isn't based on anything you do, but it's based on what he did. That's important. Not anything you do, but based on what he did. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God proves his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, it wasn't like we'd get ourselves cleaned up first. So if you came here today thinking, you know what, I got all these sin issues, and that before I even think about coming to Jesus in faith, I got to get my life straightened up. It's just not true. It's a lie. You can never get yourself straightened up enough to come to Christ. Because if you could, then he would have no business going to the cross in the first place. If there was another way, then that would have been the way. But there's only one way, and that's through the cross. Jesus paid the price for our sin. And so what we see here is God chose you despite you. Just let that sink in for a second. He knows your faults, your failures, your flaws, and you definitely have them. But he chose you anyway. And it's not that's what we do, it's that who we are. So it's not the flaws that we do, it's that we are flawed. It's not the sin that we do, though we do sin, it's that we are sinners. So it's even deeper rooted than we oftentimes even know. And yet... God proved his love for us, that he died for us, so that we can be reconciled, know him as father. So we see here as God's love isn't conditional based on what you do. God's love has been proven and given. And we see that in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. And just a quick note, love, and we talked about this in our men's group on Thursday. So wives, if your husband went to the men's ministry... Make sure he remembers this. That love is first others focused. Love is others focused. It's not about you. Like I don't do dishes in hoping that I get acknowledgement, right? I do dishes because I love my wife. Not so she can praise me for how awesome, because I don't do dishes awesome. They're always in the wrong place. And so she thinks I'm trying to get fired from doing dishes because I'm so terrible at putting dishes away. Number three, God's great love is graciously graciously given and is forever fixed. Is forever fixed. Psalm 136 verse 1 says this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And in case you missed his faithful love endures forever, in Psalm 136, it'll go on to repeat that same statement, his faithful love endures forever another 25 times. It's almost like God wants us to know something. you ever thought about that? It's almost like he's trying to tell us something. His faithful love endures until you mess up. Until you kick the cat. That's debatable. <laughs> his faithful love endures forever. Forever. I think we forget that. Number four, God's great love is graciously given, and his love is fatherly. And this is important. His love is fatherly. In high school, you know, I wasn't the best. I wasn't the brightest student. But I loved the teacher that would often repeat the point that was going to be tested on. You know what I'm saying? Like, I would key in, okay, she said that 15 times. I better remember that thing. So I get 20% on my test, but I remember the one thing, right? What we see here is that John repeats that we are God's children three times in two passages. Do you see that? In verse 1, he says that we should be called God's children, number one. And we are, number two. And in verse 2, dear friends, we are God's children now, number three. It's almost like God is trying to tell us something. We are God's children. That absolutely changes everything. And so just a quick point of clarification. The culture will tell us that we're all God's children. That's not true. It's not true. It's true that every single person was created in the image of God and their worth and value is rooted in who God created them as. But we're not all God's children. Remember, this letter was written to a group of Christians. In John Chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, he gave them right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. So becoming God's children only comes through receiving by believing in Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone. This is how you become a child of God. And this is the good news of the gospel, but to understand the good news, you have to know the bad news, right? So the good news is that we're all created in God's image, but the bad news is we sin and we are sinners and our sin has separated us forever from God because we're stuck. We can't do enough good works to do it. And you're all some good people, but you're not that good, I'm telling you. Welcome to the way, church. We got connect cards. But we're not stuck in the bad news. Jesus, paying the price for your sin and my sin, died the death that we couldn't die to pay the debt that we couldn't pay, conquered sin and death, raising it on the third day, completely conquering sin and death, erasing it forever for all those who would believe that somehow, some way, that Jesus' blood on the cross counted for you. You're saved by grace, God's grace, through faith that Jesus did what he said he did and his blood was sufficient to cleanse you, purify you from your sin. This is the good news of the gospel. Again, and in all that, did you hear that you did anything? No. God did it all. And this is so incredibly important. So we see we're God's children, and he is a good father. In Matthew 7, G- Jesus tells these stories in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, if you being evil, not a very seeker-sensitive message, if you being evil, know how good good gifts as a father How much more does your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Because He's a good Father. So important here is that you may have an amazing father. Maybe. But don't look to your dad as a standard of who God is as a father. Because even as good as your dad might be, he'll fall well far short of God's goodness as a good father. You know, as a child, though my parents were flawed, they were good parents. And I knew they loved me. Because they always told me that when I grow up, they hoped I would have kids just like me. Pretty sure it was a compliment. And I did. And they're laughing. But as a father, I've experienced God's love in a totally new way. You see, I, when we had our first kid, when we found out we were pregnant with Kylie, it was amazing that at that first ultrasound, I knew already that in about, you know, 14 to 18 years from that moment, I'd be punching young kids in the face. I just knew that would happen. Like automatically my heart was for this baby that I don't even know yet. And then the day come when we're having our first child. And I don't know what you've heard about the beauty of the birthing process, but it's a lie. It is a mess. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is something. And then a baby comes out looking hairy, red, like a little monkey. Like, uh, what are you going to do with this? She didn't say like that, in case you were wondering. But as I saw the baby as ugly as she was I never felt love like that in all my life you know then they take her wipe her off and at that time they put her in a little french fry oven thing you know with a light heat lamp on it and when she held my finger for the first time I knew that I would die for this baby and I would make other die, others die for her as well I knew it And what did she do? She did nothing. She was just who she was. She was my child. And we see the father's love in this. The father's love is inexhaustible, unending, unchanging, and unconditional. This is important because when we had our second kid, in the back of my mind, I wondered if I could love my second child as much as my first. And when that little big head kid came out looking like an alien, I thought, man, I'm glad he grew into his head. I thought he may just have a hard time walking the rest of his life, being all out of balance. But when that baby appeared, I knew that exact same feeling, that exact same amount of love, that unconditional, unending, I will never stop loving this kid with all of who I am forever and ever and ever. As you know, we have six kids and that feeling has never ended. It's always been the same, the same level of fatherly love. I think it's such a great picture of how the Father loves us. And so at the moment you become, become a child of God, God lavishes his love over us. And this radically shapes how we live right now. This goes back to facts shape feelings. That you are a child of God. You are love. So facts shape feelings. So for example, if I heard my wife left me, some of you'd be like, Yeah, you, you know, out kicked your coverage anyway. You know, you married up, so I could see that shame on you if you thought that but I would be devastated right until they're like no yeah she left to go to the grocery store like yeah she left okay at that point the facts would then shape my feelings right I'm not devastated I'm thankful because I don't have to go to the grocery store thank you it's awesome and we're gonna have food that's a good thing so facts shape feelings feelings don't shape facts we often get this twisted and so as we see the fact that you were declared a child of God because of your faith alone in Christ alone, and he loves you unconditionally and unending because of who Jesus is, this changes our desire to satisfy sin, to satisfy our Savior. And this is a focus of the rest of these verses that we're going to look at. We have to know this right to understand the next eight verses. He doesn't talk about our sin. But knowing that why we do what we do comes from knowing who we are in Christ. And verse 3 says this, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he may take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or know him. All right, real quick. a whole bunch of things that we got to address here. First, how do you define hope? How do you define hope? I know how my kids define hope. You know, my four year old's already asking for things for his birthday, hoping that he'll get them. He doesn't know time. His birthday's like four months away, but right now he's like, hey, can I have envelopes? He likes envelopes. I'm like, well, yeah, I could probably go to the dollar store and pick you up some envelopes, but. But he's hoping for his birthday to get these things. Like, oh, if I can only have these things, I hope I get them. That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a guarantee, a confident expectation, right? And so based on, Jesus will return, we will be raised again. Also, knowing that we are God's child moves us in what we see here. Again, facts shape feelings. So when it comes to our pursuit of purity, the severity of sin and the lawlessness that sin is, in verse 5, we see we see that Jesus might take away sins. It's an interesting the word might. His sin was spilt for everyone, and enough to satisfy everyone's sin, but it's only effective if you believe. That's key. So maybe. That's based on your faith. Maybe remove your sins. It can for sure, but will it? And what we see through the Bible is that sin is an incurable type of cancer. Contracted from conception, which we're all carriers of. Romans 5, 6 tells us, for that while we're still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is crucial That when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, He said, "It is finished." To telistai means paid in full. It used to be stamped on receipts when you owed a debt and you paid it. They would stamp to telistai on it, paid in full. It is finished. That means when Jesus died on the cross, He satisfied the sin debt that you owed because you and I could not. It is finished. To which 2 Corinthians 9.15 tells us, Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Have you ever gotten an indescribable gift? Early recently, I, our truck had broken down and the uh, tickets for, to the dealer, or not the dealer, the mechanic, after quite some time of YouTubing how to fix this thing, because I'm a YouTube mechanic. I don't know how to do a thing, but if it has on YouTube, I can follow some instructions. And I'm cheap, so there's that. But finally, we couldn't figure it out, so we had to take the mechanic. And then we got the bill in. And it was astronomical. So we're like, what do we do? I had a friend, unsolicited, on their own, went and paid the bill in full. because It was a lot. So I just don't know what we were going to do. And at that moment, that gift was indescribable. When I saw the gift, I just had this strong desire to show this individual how much I appreciated him. I had a strong desire to show how much it meant to me. But in a way, I I couldn't. I mean, a simple thank you just felt like it fell far short. But it changes my desire. You know what I didn't do when this person fixed my truck or paid for my truck to get fixed you know what i didn't do i did not go to him and punch him in the face i didn't is that hard to hard to believe but isn't that what we do sometimes with sin like we had jesus i know you paid for my my sins yeah i know you died i read it but then we justify the same sin that led into the cross this indescribable gift I think we lose sometimes, I think this is why Paul so often writes to Christians to remember the gospel. So how much more are we thankful for the Father's love given to us through Jesus, who paid the price for our sin so that we could both live with him and reign with him? Titus 2, chapter, verse 14 says like this, he, being Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So he redeemed us, bought us back, cleansed us, purified us. Now we're eager to do good works because of what he did, the good work that he did. This is working from faith, not working for faith. Make sense? It propels us. And the facts that Jesus' forgiveness shapes our feelings towards our sinfulness and we see here three seemingly difficult verses. One we just read in verse 6, everyone who remains in him does not sin. In verse 8, we see the one who commits sin is of the devil. And then in verse 9, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. So with that in mind, raise your hand if we have any perfect Christians. Anyone? Any perfect Christians? Anyone? No? I don't see any hands. Uh Uh-oh, right? If you take this, we're in serious trouble. This is not good news. We're on our way to hell in a hurry based on what we read. Do not sin. Have a good day, right? Have a good Sunday. Go there forth and don't sin. You can't make out a parking lot sometimes. Let's be honest. But two things that we have to see here. The wording implies a continuation, a habitual sin issue. Same sin, doing it, justifying it, doing it, justifying. This is what this is talking about. It's not that we don't sin, but are you stuck in some habitual sin and things don't change? This is what we're getting at. And this is what we talked about last year, last week, Scripture interpreting Scripture as a Bible study principle. Because this in 1 John Chapter 1, it says, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Well, he's not going to contradict himself. And then the entirety of Scripture would say otherwise. I mean, the Apostle Paul, I'm pretty sure, was a Christian. Going out on the limp. I'm pretty sure he was following Christ. And in Romans, Romans 7, he just is saying, I, I don't understand why I do what I do. I do the things I don't want to do, yet the things I want to do, I do. He's talking about the spiritual warfare tension attention, battling himself versus battling the Holy Spirit that's in him. But in Romans 8.1, thanks be to Jesus Christ, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy 1, the same apostle Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. So it's not that we don't sin, but are you okay with the sin you're in. See, we, God's not saying that we don't or we won't sin. But if you're God's child, you hate, hate the sin when you find yourself in it. That's why First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness except for sexual immorality. Does it say that? Except for pornography. Except for adultery. Except for being a drunk. Except for, it doesn't say any of that. It says all. So you bring your except for's and surrender them to all unrighteousness. He forgives all if you bring him to him, trusting that he will, in fact, forgive all. Facts shape feelings. And if you're continuing to live in sin, there are two facts to consider to consider one maybe you're unaware of your sin maybe you're just unaware of it maybe maybe it's due to biblical ignorance or a blind spot maybe you're unaware that what you're doing is actually sin it's possible but when you're confronted with it the Holy Spirit produces a change which leads to number two you don't have the Holy Spirit Consider, one, maybe you don't know, two, maybe the Holy Spirit isn't in you. Meaning, you haven't fully surrendered and trust to the Lord, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. Consider, I'm not saying that this is true for you specifically, but it might be. Because there's churches around the world right now that are full of people that were raised in a church that can quote scripture, that knows all these facts about Jesus, but they are far from Jesus. And one day, Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you, and I don't want that for you. John 16:8, Jesus says, when he being the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. So if you don't have conviction over your sin, there may be not the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. See, conviction leads to correction, and correction leads to change. So if it isn't changing, maybe you haven't either. Romans 6, 11 tells us this. So you two consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Jesus says you cannot have two masters. You can't obey two. You can't obey sin and obey Christ, which leads us to verse seven. Says little children, that no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works, the devil's works. In other words, don't be deceived. You cannot be okay with living in your sin, if you've been born again. Cannot. And just a note, there are two spirits working in this world. This is incredibly important. Two spirits working in this world right now. One is the spirit of the adversary, and one is the spirit of the Almighty. Who are you being led by? And take it a step further. For those who are Holy Spirit-led, which should be everyone... How do you discern what the Holy Spirit's leading you to do? It's through the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. You have both because both God's given you both to know Him, to know yourself, to be led by Him and discern the spirits. We need to be in God's Word, led by a spirit, which reveals truth, both and, not either or. It's incredibly important. When you were baptized by the Holy Spirit, the moment you believe that Jesus died for your sin, you were sealed and filled, unchanging. You are God's child. So with this in mind, let me ask you this question. Are you listening to the lies that come from yourself regarding sin? Are you listening to the lies that are coming from you regarding your sin? Let me give you an example. It could be something like this. Have a few more drinks. I mean, what's drunkenness anyway? You can still walk, right? Or, it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. You notice how men say this primarily, and they don't want to say lust. It's okay to lust, right, but not touch. We just say look. sounds nicer. Or, it's just a white lie. You care about their feelings, right? So, it's just a white lie. We categorize lies. Or, it's okay to have sex before you get married. Because we gotta see if we're compatible. Fellas, listen, I'm around guys all the time, right? I hear this so often from guys. Listen, women are not like a car, right? You're not gonna kick the tires to see if she's running good. We have love so twisted. The Bible says not to get drunk, right? It didn't say anything about getting high. Now, that's become more relevant, hasn't it? Or how about this? When you're told to stop getting drunk, when you're told to stop lusting, to stop lying, to stop having sex outside of marriage, to stop getting high, your response is, you're just being legalistic. Yeah? Nope. It's biblically realistic is what we're doing. And if you didn't confront anybody in a loving way, then you're not showing love. If I was to let somebody go on and sin, I know it's destructive, how unloving would I be? It'd be like you hanging out with your buddy, doing laundry, because that's what guys do. And he comes to you, he's like, man, look at this. I was doing laundry, I found this, this package of dish soap. It's so colorful, and it looks like candy, and you know? I got a sweet tooth, I think I'm just going to eat it. You know what the loving thing would be to say at that moment? You're an idiot. That's what the loving thing would be to say. With grace and truth, and don't be, No. Not be like, yeah, eat that, and there's a whole container of more. Like, keep eating them. No. Like, if we know something is destructive, it's our jobs as brothers and sisters in Christ to step in and lovingly help that person who's stuck in the sin. Because we need it too. We need it too. So are you listening to the lies? Proverbs 14:12 says it this way. There is a way that seems right to a person, but it's end. Is a way to death. And we see in this passage that Jesus has destroyed the devil's works. Busting you out, bursting you free from being a slave to sin that you were in. A key word is were. You don't have to be a slave to your sin anymore because Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Romans 6 6 says like this But we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a, person, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, you don't have to be enslaved and you're sin anymore, rendered powerless. You have power because it is given to you through Christ Jesus from the one that has all power. Romans 8.15 says it like this. But you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We've talked about this before. This is daddy language. Just like when my two-year-old stumbles to the front door when daddy comes home and says, Daddy! And what do I do? Do I stiff on him like the Heisman? No. Right? No, I grab that little guy up. Hug him because I love him, because I'm his daddy. And that brings me great joy when he comes to me and says, Daddy, the worries of the world wash away at that moment. I'm not thinking of anything else besides my son, and the joy it is to be a daddy. So when faced with fear or sin, you have power that comes from your heavenly father. So in those moments, remember who your daddy is. Man, I remember walking with my dad when I was a kid, and I was fearless because of who my dad was. I've shared this a couple times, but it's important. My dad was pretty big, pretty intimidating looking guy, grew up in the biker scene in Southern California, and he liked to fight. So I knew I was protected. And so it gave me boldness because not because of anything I was or anything I could do, I was a little runt. That's because of who my dad was. I knew if anything happened, my dad would take care of it. I think we forget who our dad is. And so when we're faced with fear, when we're faced with our sin to indulge ourselves, we forget the power we have because who our dad is and what he did for us. Then it leads us to verse 9. It says, Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. All right, we see the seed language here. So, just real quick, let's talk birds and the bees real quick, so I'm sure you may have questions. So there's a guy and a girl, and they love each other, and they, y'all, y'all following? So, seed language, do I need to go any further? I don't think so. It gets uncomfortable for anybody. But who are you born of? Romans 5.17 says this, If by one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of the righteous reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? What it's saying here is, by Adam, death entered the world and all became sinners. Through Christ, you're born again and declared righteous because of who Christ is, not because of who you are. Because of what Christ did, not because of what you've done. You have been born again, made new, made in a new, new life, created in a new person. This is not redoing you. This is tearing down who you were and completely a new construction. You are now new. There is no condemnation, which is a building term for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been made brand new, born again, new seed. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. And to take that a step further, and this is where the gospel can sometimes sound like heresy. You ready for this? You cannot outsin God's grace. You cannot. You cannot clean yourself up enough to earn God's grace, and you cannot outsin God's grace. This is so incredibly important, because if you came here thinking, whatever people think when they come to a church, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, well, none of us are. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. Jesus is the one who is worthy and has made us good enough by faith in him. So it begs the question, are you getting your teeth kicked in by sin? You know what I'm saying? Like just, I can't get out of it. I'm just getting whipped every day by this sin or that sin that I'm in. Let me propose two possibilities. Maybe you're trying too hard. What? Maybe you're trying too hard. Maybe it's time for you to give up. Here's what I mean. James chapter 4, verse 7 outlines a key strategy to confronting sin. Number one, James 4, 7 says, Therefore, submit to God. First step, submit to God. That's what I mean, stop trying because you're not going to win the battle against the sin you're in. You're just not. But God can, and God will, because he's made it powerless because of his being all-powerful. So this submitting to God is both initial receiving by believing. This is what we talked about earlier, John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, we just talked about again, not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Receiving by believing, you're born again by God. God did that. So there's an initial submitting to God. You're submitting to God in faith that I have been a crummy God. I cannot run my life. I keep jacking it up. Lord, I need you. I see that you paid the price for my sin. I see that I cannot be good enough, but I thank you for being good enough on my behalf. Forgive me for my sin. I'm returning to you in faith, knowing that you forgave me. Knowing I don't fully understand it, but your death on the cross and your blood spilled out counted for me. And I'm made new. That's the initial. And that's between you and the Lord. That's something that God generates in your heart to respond to him. With. But this is submitting to God. There's a continual aspect, and we covered it in 1 John 1, 1.9, that when we sin because I hate to break it to you, you will. When you sin, you're not okay in the sin you're in, but you're convicted on it and change it. But that changing power comes from Christ. When we do sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our sin and unrighteousness. This is what submitting to God looks like. So you take this sin issue that you're just getting your teeth kicked in by, And submit to God, 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 I need you. I don't want to do this. I need you. And then when you're tempted again, know that God has given you power over this sin and that every time you do this sin, it was what God paid for in the first place. Every time you do that sin, it should break our hearts because of the great love God's lavished on us That now we love him. God first loved us so we can love him. And because of our love for him, I hate, I hate, I hate to disappoint him. I hate to displease him. I don't do it to try and earn his love. I do things out of the overflow of receiving God's love. It's completely different. This is continually submitting to God. In step two, I love steps. James 4, 7 then says, resist the devil and he will flee from you submit to god resist the devil and he will flee from you sometimes stumbling in sin is a direct result of the attack of the adversary in your life sometimes sometimes stumbling in sin is a direct result of you being a dummy Just is like we give too much credit to the devil. Sometimes we just do stupid things. If we can justify all kinds of crazy things, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I want to do this. Or I know what the Bible says, but that was two thousand years ago, right? Heard that? One? Jesus says this: the devil is a liar. So is sin. Sin is a liar. Sin will never fulfill its promises to you. Its promises that it will make you feel so good or it will be so much better or these things. It will never deliver. And that's why we continue to get stuck in these stupid cycles of sin because it didn't deliver. Maybe it will next time. Maybe it will next time. It gives us these highs, then lows, and then highs because we need it. And it fuels the pursuit that we have. Again, feelings don't shape facts. Facts. You may feel good in that sin you're in, but the truth is, it's incredibly damaging in more ways than we will ever know. And sometimes we do find out. The first John 2 tells us there's three ways that we are continually falling to sin. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possessions, or the pride of life. But how you doing? How you doing with that? Sin is serious. No matter how secret you think your sin is, it's damaging to you and to those around you. And we see that God is light. You know why? Because gross things grow in the darkness. There is no secret sin. There's nothing that you're hiding. And one day, it's going to be exposed either in an unhealthy way through yourself or to others. But God knows and it's not like a big brother, like, oh my goodness, I'm getting in trouble. No, God knows because he paid the price for those secret sins that you think are so secret. And so if you claim to love God, you will hate sin. And because you hate sin, you will fight with all of who Jesus is over your sin, not who you are. We talk about it a lot. It's not about doing more. It's about following Jesus closer. So how do we do? What do we do with this? What do we, how do we apply all this? Well, I'm glad you asked. One, live in the Father's love. This is resting. Live in the Father's love. Again, facts shape feelings. If you're not following Jesus, know that God loves you in a way that he gave everything so that you could know him. But for those that are following Jesus, that are called a child of God, know that he loves you, he's lavished his love over you, and that love is unending, unfailing, no matter what you do. This is resting in God's love. I thought about my own child. If he keeps asking me, Daddy, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? At some point, it's going to break my heart because at some level, my kid doesn't think I love him. Don't that's what we do with God sometimes. God, I just don't, do you love me? I, I just don't see how this, I'm going through this. I, I feel like you're not with me. Like, do you even love me anymore? I, I just, I feel so disconnected. Do you even love me? The Bible says yes. Yes. What you're going through doesn't affect what God's love is for you. We saw this with Peter and Jesus, right? Peter denied Jesus three different times. And then post-resurrected Jesus, they had this little fish sandwich breakfast. And Jesus says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, yes, yes. And it says the third time Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him a third time. Know the fact that God loves you so much that he proved it through Christ Jesus. So rest, live in the Father's love. And finally, number two, live from the Father's love. Live from the Father's love. We saw it earlier. Romans 8, 15 says this. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, who we cry out, Abba, Father. You cannot earn God's love because it has been freely given to all who would receive it. Unconditionally, You don't have to work to remain in God's love because it has been freely given unconditionally. You cannot even sin your way out of God's great, graciously given love for you. God's grace gives freedom from sin, but not freedom to sin. So if you think that, we got twisted. We took a wrong turn somewhere in these last minutes together. See, this is what Paul was combating in Romans chapter 6. When he's talking about so much about God's grace and saved by faith and not of works. Romans 6 verse 1 says, But what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Right? So if God's grace is sufficient for sin and God's grace is shown through forgiveness of sin, shouldn't we sin more so we can just make God's grace multiply? He says, Absolutely not. How can we who die to sin live in it? So you, how can you who die to sin live in it? God's grace is sufficient, but God's love changes how we live and how we view sin and how we fight sin and how we hate the sin we're in because that sin sent Jesus to, your cro- to the cross. So as we close, let me ask this question. Who is your master who is your master? Is it the sin that you're suffering in? Is that your master? Or is it the suffering Savior who paid the price for your sin so that you can be freed from sin and begin to live the true life that he has given? Who's your master? Facts shape our feelings, not feelings shape our facts. It's incredibly important. The fact is that Jesus paid the price for all of your sin, past, present, and future so that you can surrender, die to your sin, die to the old way of life, knowing that true life is found in Christ alone, and he gives it. He makes you new and now you can fight against your sin because of the power that he gives you. You don't have to get your teeth kicked in. Let God generate that hatred, and every time you see that sin you're tempted with, resist, submit to God, resist the devil, because that's what that sin is. It's a scheme of the devil. Resist it, and it will flee from you. Is it going to be easy? No, it's not easy. Because what the Bible calls our flesh is that our human desires, we want those things that we want. But God says, Don't, they're damaging, they're dangerous, they're destructive, trust me. And so that's what I'm gonna ask you right now, I'm gonna ask Austin and Harsha to come back up and we're gonna sing a a worship song. But here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna respond. And what's that look like to you? Right now, the Holy Spirit's prompting you in some way. Respond to what God's doing inside of you. May for the first time you see that God is so amazing and so loving and so gracious that despite your sin, despite what you've done, despite where you've been, God has paid the price for your sin in Christ Jesus so that through faith that his death on that cross for your sin paid the debt that we couldn't pay satisfied God's wrath that was coming for us, that was poured out on Jesus. And because of our faith, what he did, as he was resurrected on the third day, so too we are resurrected into a new way of life, and one day we'll be resurrected permanently in our new bodies forever, in a complete change of life. So maybe for you, you need to finally say, God, I've fallen so short. I need you. I see my sin. Forgive me for my sin. I need and desire for my true life to begin in you because you paid the price for my sin. I trust in you. You can do that right where you're sitting right now. You just cry out to God. We'll have a prayer team to the side. We love to pray for you, pray with you. But right now, you respond to what the Lord's doing in your life. If you're coming to Him for the first, for the first time, that initial faith, becoming a child of God, do that now. But maybe God's showing you some sin that's in your life. When you look at the standard of love, maybe you've fallen short. Let this correction be an encouragement because God is continuing to mold you and shape you in his image because he's a good father and he cares so passionately for you. So respond to what God's doing. And so we're gonna sing, I'm gonna pray, but as we respond, you respond, may maybe you just continue to sit there and pray. Maybe you grab some folks around you and, and pray. Maybe you come over and pray with us. We'll have a team over here. We'd love to pray with you and pray for you and walk alongside you. Or maybe you do stand and worship because God's so worthy of all our worship. You respond to what God's doing. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you as we reflect on how good you are and you the amazing love that you've lavished on your children. Lord, we thank you. We thank you as we see your love and your goodness and we see how we are not. We have issues, we have faults, we have failures, but you have extended forgiveness in Christ Jesus to all who would believe and receive. Lord, so right now I ask, ask that you move in this place. You fill this place with your presence. You fill us with your spirit. Remind us of the fact that you are a good father and that you are present, and that you're forgiving and gracious and kind and loving and compassionate. And let that fact shape our feelings to come to you in full surrender and confess you as Lord of our life, of all things, all the time, and surrender those vices, those traps that we continue to fall into. Because we need your power, because we are powerless. But through you, we are made powerful because of Christ Jesus. Lord, stir in our hearts, move us now, and lead us to respond to what you are doing right now. Father, we pray this in the name that is above every other name, the only name that saves, that is the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.